2: During this
0: difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.bysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Welcome back to our special podcast series delving into everything you wanted to know but were too afraid to ask about some of history's biggest subjects. Today's episode is all about one of the defining eras of British history, the Victorian age. To shed some light on society at the time, the great advancements of the era, and Queen Victoria's life and reign, we spoke to the University of Warwick's Professor Sarah Richardson. Putting the questions to Sarah was our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning.
3: So I'm chatting to Professor Sarah Richardson from the University of Warwick as part of our series on everything you need to know about a certain historical topic. So previous episodes have featured topics including the Tudors, the Normans and D-Day but today we are talking about the Victorians. As in previous episodes, the format is as follows. We asked for questions from you guys at home on our social channels. So on the History Extra Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram account. And then we've also thrown in some general questions that we thought people might want answered as well. So we will start with a very basic one. So Sarah, when did the Victorian era start and end? And why is it called the Victorian period? Well, it starts um, officially in 1837 with the accession
4: of Queen Victoria and ends in 1901 when she dies. Um, the first mention of the term Victorian was in a literary magazine in 1839, so two years after her, her accession. Um, but actually, I guess really uh, that's the strict meaning um, it means pertaining to the reign of Queen Victoria, obviously, but it's used more figuratively to talk about the whole of the 19th century or to talk about presumed attitudes and behaviours of the period.
3: Um, well, we know a lot about Queen Victoria and her life, which we will get on to later. But what was life like in the Victorian period for the ordinary person? Now, this is quite a general question and obviously lots of different experiences, but yeah, what was life like for the everyday person? I'd probably
4: sum it up as pretty grim. Um, In 1850, for example, life expectancy at birth was only up uh, up to the age of 42 um, and over 25% of uh, children died before the age of five. Um, Obviously, if you survived into adulthood, you might live a bit longer. Um, But there were a lot of epidemic diseases. There were four major outbreaks of cholera, for example, um, in the period from 1832 up to 1866. And although in general, the standard of living was rising over the period, so we can see that wages are going up. There's still a third of people at the end of the 19th century living in poverty. But I suppose if I'm going to talk a bit more positively, there were there was obviously improvements in things like education um, with mass universal education coming in in the 1870s, improvements in health and sanitation, and also the introduction of sort of mass leisure pursuits like football, um, libraries, music hall and things like that. So uh, it wasn't all doom and gloom, but I don't think it was... Uh, um, Uh, a real really positive story for much for the ordinary person in the 19th century.
3: That's quite interesting because we often hear you know people even today in politics and the media they'll they'll talk about these Victorian values and going back to this this golden era. um, I mean what would you say what do we mean by this golden age and is it actually a fair assessment of the Victorian period? Well it's
4: certainly um, an age when a lot is going on um, both in terms of the economy, you know, this massive transformation uh, in culture and society. As I say, big innovations like you know mass um, education. So there are, you know, there are a positive, there is a positive sort of element to it. I think when people talk about Victorian values, they're really talking about um, a sort of middle class um, a- view of values, which um, are items like sort of hard work, self improvement, that type of thing. Um, and we sort of associate those values with being introduced um, in the Victorian era. So I think that the picture is obviously mixed. But I think if you look at the major ways in w- w- which would measure happiness and sort of um, the the sort of health of society, like things like infant mortality, age of death, um, standard of living, those those measures are all pretty low in in this period
3: so rich mckinnon on instagram wanted to know why do we think of the victorians as being prudes (laughs) you know we've got that image of of that you would raise your dress and sh- show an ankle, and some and someone would faint on the street because it's obscene. Is that is that accurate, or is it a stereotype?
4: Well, I think um, it's accurate to some extent in that we've got conduct manuals and advice manuals, which are very much um, putting forward that view of behaviour. Um, we also have to understand that sort of scientific knowledge and knowledge about um, things like sexuality and menstruation are are, are much less advanced than they are today. So there were lots of myths about uh, certain behaviours and so on. Been a lot of recent research on homosexuality in in the Victorian period. And actually, um, that research says that it was pretty well tolerated up to about um, the 1880s when the law changed and criminalised homosexuality. Um, And the other area is prostitution. So obviously there's a, there was great moral outrage against prostitution. But for many working class communities, um, they found that that women sort of drifted in and out of prostitution depending on their um, circumstances. And so often those communities would tolerate women sort of engaging in sort of sex work because they sort of realised that for the grace of God, there go I, uh, and saw it as a sort of necessity rather than there being career prostitutes, so it's a very sort of contradictory picture in many ways.
3: Oh, That's fascinating. I've not heard that at all about sex work being tolerated and not being as much of a taboo as we might think it would have been seen as. Um, it is interesting that you mentioned periods because we actually had a few people messaged our Instagram accounts asking, "What did women asking about periods? What did women do if they were on their period?" Um, so I don't suppose you could tell us what what women did during this time.
4: Um, so it was a sort of taboo subject. So you can imagine that for young girls, they were not told anything about what was going to happen to them. So for their first um, experience of menstruation, often they just got hysterical, thinking that they were there was something you know, drastically wrong with them. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect was that it was widely believed that women who are menstruating shouldn't engage in sort of um, sporting activities and that type of thing and should be sort of confined and um, even go to bed and that type of thing if you're middle class obviously if you're working class you didn't have that luxury you just had to carry on with it so it was a sort of a really stressful thing for a lot of women to go through partly because of lack of knowledge
3: it actually brings me on to another question from Margaret Holmes on Facebook, who specifically wanted to know about the experiences of women. Um, she she asked about the middle class in particular and the sort of ideals that they were up against at the time. So she mentions you know, ideas that were put across in books, advice columns, the media, even male opinions. Um, yeah, what did uh, life look like for? a, a middle class woman in this time. what what was she what were the expectations of her and her role? So for middle class women,
4: uh, they were if they weren't married, um, as they were growing up, they were expected they were often very sketchily educated, they're educated in things like playing the piano, doing needlework, you know reading obviously, but not anything academic, really. Um, they're expected to live a life of leisure. Um, There was a a very strong sort of steer that said the world of work and public life was um, should be occupied by men and women's role was in the household. So that was uh, quite difficult for many middle class girls and young women to to sort of tolerate in a way because you were literally being told to stay at home and, and play the piano and do needlework. So for many middle-class women, one of the outlet that they found was in philanthropy, because this was seen as a sort of acceptable activity for middle-class women. And it also meant it got them out of the household. And in a way, it was like an occupation. So women were involved in obviously sort of visiting the poor and sick, campaigning against things like drunkenness so they'd even go into pubs and things to try and convert people against the evils of drink. My interpretation of it is that there was a strong rhetoric about domesticity and staying at home and leisure Um, but actually when you've got uh, women who are relatively well educated um, you know have positions of authority in the community they don't um, accept that Mm -hmm. sort of restriction and so they find strategies to get around it
3: well are there any notable women philanthropists as you described them that you could perhaps name or, or tell us about in particular well there's obviously um you know probably the most
4: famous is elizabeth fry who went into prisons so, you know again uh, a middle uh, uh, unmarried um middle class quaker woman uh it's very very brave she also had a counterpart in great yarmouth called sarah martin who did the same So they go into prisons, which at that stage were pretty much holding um, bays. You know, there was no education, no idea of rehabilitation. They were just locking people up and they try and educate women, but also in prison. But also they, Elizabeth Fry, for example, used her experience to give evidence to parliamentary committees and um, to campaign for prison reform. But there's a whole host of other people. Um, Octavia Hill, for example, she was involved in working class housing. Mary Carpenter was involved in juvenile crime and sort of setting up reform schools. So we sort of owe a lot of what we might call, I suppose, sort of social work type type activities to these women um, who were involved in a whole host of activities, which they dressed up as philanthropy, but I often see it as sort of campaigning and activism.
3: So Leslie Brown on Facebook wants to know what the cultural impact of the British Empire was on Britain and London. So she says, with so many ethnicities under British rule, did this feed back to Britain? She says, I've learned a bit about the Indian experience, but I don't know that I've seen much on Africans or those from Caribbean Mm -hmm. islands. So um are, do we know much about um how multicultural Britain was during the Victorian period, I suppose, is what she's asking.
4: Um so yeah, yes, there's quite a lot of recent research on that. Um that there are a number of waves of immigration into Britain, um, from the Empire, um, also from Uh, Countries in Europe that were experiencing um, disruption, um, pogroms and things like that. So big Jewish communities are established in this period. The British Empire has a tremendous impact on on life and politics. Um, Queen Victoria, for example, becomes Empress of India in 1875. So it's considered incredibly important. Also, the empire is crucial for Britain's um, industrial expansion. The empire provides a lot of the raw materials uh, for British industry, and then it provides the export markets. Uh, there are also Black and Asian communities being established in in British cities. cities. Industrialisation and urbanisation mean that there's a huge demand for labour, so uh, that acts as a sort of magnet to draw people in into the cities, um, both in the British countryside but also. From the empire and especially from Ireland, which suffers a, a big potato famine in the 1840s, so a big Irish community set up. So, so yes, it was quite a multicultural society and pretty much like today there were, it was seen as a strength and a weakness. So there were there were communities where quite good integration um, and then there were others um, uh, particularly the Irish community were targeted as seen as sort of having degrading behaviours and and sort of not contributing to society and so on. So for other communities, it was more of a struggle.
3: A number of people on our social channels were interested to know about the Victorian period as a time of change and innovation. And we've, we've sort of touched on this a little bit already. Um, can you describe some of the what you see as the key advancements um during this time or the key inventions or turning points
4: yeah so it was really um, a period of immense innovation and change um, key areas i think include stuff like transport so probably pre-victorian you get canals and a road network being expanded but obviously railways are the are the key um uh transformation of the victorian era and that has a huge impact on the whole of the population in a way, because railway transport is reasonably cheap compared to other forms of transport. And so even working class people, particularly towards the end of the period, use the railway to get to the seaside um, for the odd holiday, but also to get to work and so on. Communications is another area that there's big innovation. So things like the Penny Post is introduced in 1842. What was um, that for people that don't know the Penny Post? So prior to 1842, you did have a sort of embryonic postal service, but it was really expensive and you tended to it tended to be used um by politicians and, and sort of those um higher up the social scale. So um a guy called Roland Hill introduced this idea of the stamp, um, which was to pay for the postage. And um, the cost was very reasonable at a penny. So that's why it's called the Penny Post. And you get the penny black and the penny red, which are the sort of famous stamps of the Victorian era. Um, and that meant that it opened up communication again, to, obviously to those people who could read and write, but to a large percentage of the population. And it was quickly sort of used for things like political propaganda, sort of advertising and those sorts of things so it wasn't just communication between individuals but also the sort of industry of communication that we're aware of now oh that's fascinating Um, there were things like revolution in power so it starts off with steam power then we've got coal and gas and at the end of the period electricity so if you can imagine at the beginning of the period having no Um, form of light apart from candles and things so if you can imagine living through the winter what that might be like so that must must have made a huge sort of impact really and then obviously things like the development of new sorts of industry so there was a process called a Bessemer process (laughs) invented in 1856 I think that meant that you could make stainless steel or steel Um, and that was a huge transformation for all sorts of different industries um, and really transform the city of Sheffield, for example. I guess the other thing that I sort of mention in this area is that we often think about inspiring individuals about when we think about um, inventions. So people like James Watt for the steam engine, and Isambard Kingdom Brunel, and all of the sort of um, Alexander Graham Bell for the telephone, and that type of thing. Um, Uh, And there are also sort of women inventors. So there's a woman called Henrietta Vanistart who who invents the steamship propeller. Lord Byron's daughter, Ada Lovelace, is very famous for her contribution to computing history and and sort of maths. But I think that coming to this from the point of view of a sort of historian or a historical researcher, um, we would sort of say that the stress on Uh, great men if you like or great women is sometimes sort of overstated and a lot of these innovations and inventions really depend on networks of knowledge um, not just in Britain but in Europe and America and so on so I think whilst it's nice to hear the stories of these sort of, of these inventors and entrepreneurs often they were working they weren't working on their own
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast. To be buried
4: in a pauper's grave was considered, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen. For those higher up the social scale, as we intimate with Queen Victoria, there are very um, sort of strict mourning rituals, and those include things like the dress that you wear. So black initially, but then you could wear greys and sort of purples and things like that as we went into half mourning.
2: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/slash History Extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, historyextra L P.com/slash History Extra.
3: So, Missia Collins on Facebook would like to know if there were groups or movements urging better welfare. Um, because she sees the Victorian period as a very uncaring time, spe- especially in novels such as those by Charles Dickens. Um, so, yes, was, was there groups or movements urging better welfare?
4: Yes, I think I've touched on this a bit already um, in in uh, the sort of area of philanthropy, which was, I would sort of see almost an industry in itself in the, in the 19th century. And Charles Dickens himself was sort of um, moved to write the novels that he wrote in order to encourage social reform. So he was, okay, he was reflecting what went on in things like workhouses and chimney sweeps and that type of thing, but he was also trying to effect reform. And he linked up with a very rich woman, um, Angela Burdett Coutts, who was with Coutts Bank fame, and sort of used her money, <laughs> I mean, not to say um, exploited her, but and she was very keen to set up a whole load of schemes to try and... Um, Improve the lives of the poor. But as I've sort of touched on, there were there were really um, important campaigns to encourage um, improvements in education, in health, um, in all sorts of welfare. And it wasn't just the middle class, I have to say, it was also, there were also working class women engaged in philanthropy, particularly campaigning for them. They campaigned against things like the poor law, they wanted to improve conditions in workhouses because. They saw this as breaking up families, um, working class families and things that affected them. They were also involved in um, temperance reform because the working class budget or the household budget was quite limited. And so um, if men spent money down the pub, that meant that it couldn't go into the family into wives and children. So things like temperance reform, workhouse reform were really key for working class women because it affected their everyday life.
3: Perhaps actually you could tell us a little bit about the workhouses themselves and what their function was, who might end up in a workhouse and, and what, what, what circumstances would lead to you being in a workhouse.
4: So in 1834 there was an act that was passed called the Poor Law Amendment Act and this was really a reflection of um, the growth of industrialisation and rise of urbanisation and the fear that taxpayers or ratepayers had that they were going to pay the price for supporting the poor. So the workhouse was designed really to uh, deter people, to make it so horrible <laughs> um, to, to live in, that it would deter people from wanting to seek to get welfare. And it would only um, act as a sort of safety net for what they call the deserving poor. So they made a distinction between the deserving and undeserving poor. The deserving poor were those, for example, the elderly um, or young children or the sick who couldn't care for themselves. But if you were considered to be able-bodied in any way, then the idea was that you, if you went into the workhouse, you're going to have a very sort of austere life and that you would be encouraged to do everything you could not to um, end up there. But literally, as soon as the workhouse was set up, there were people campaigning against, against it and against the conditions. Um, it separated, broke up families, so there were single-sex wards, they were called. Um, it, uh, children were sort of separated and educated and put into apprenticeship schemes. And as I said, sort of middle-class women particularly were very keen on becoming workhouse visitors so they could get in and sort of reform the workhouse
3: i wanted to look specifically for a bit at queen victoria because she's the the big name obviously associated with the victorian period quite literally um and so second to our own queen today she is she was the longest reigning monarch so before elizabeth ii came along what was queen victoria's journey to the crown how did she become queen so she
4: was the daughter of the fourth son of George third, So it's slightly complicated. So George III reigned until 1820, from 1760 to 1820. So three of his sons, one of them died in 1820, the same, as, same, same year as his father. The other two sons became George IV and William IV. So they, they did become king. But none of these three older sons had any children. Um, so the fourth son, was, which was Victoria's father, she was his only only child, his only daughter, and so that's why she became the heir to the throne. But obviously, it was not a given. So it's a bit like our own queen, about uh, Queen Elizabeth. So she grew up not expecting to be queen, or not expecting to inherit the throne. It was only when her uncle Edward VIII abdicated that suddenly her father was was made king, and then she became the heir. And it was pretty much the same with Victoria because there was no... So, for example, William and his wife Adelaide had a number of children. They just didn't survive um, infancy. There were also illegitimate children for both George and William. but So it wasn't sort of a certainty that she would become queen.
3: So when she did eventually become, become queen, and this is a question that gets brought up whenever we talk about female monarchs, how did she navigate this, this role in, in what was obviously quite a masculine environment?
4: So she was very young when she became queen. She was only 18. Um, and so she was not only sort of, you know, made a monarch, but she was also a very young monarch, um, which is always a challenge for any anyone who's in, coming to the throne because it's a position of sort of great power, particularly at that time she could appoint prime ministers, for example. So she was quite reliant on people guiding her in in particular in in the the early part of her reign it was some Lord Melbourne who was Prime Minister for, for a period but so she did rely on getting advice from male advisors but she was quite um uh she knew her own mind I guess and she knew her own position she also wanted to be able to stamp her authority on the role of the monarch so she was quite feisty um, I sort of see her as quite a contradictory figure in lots of ways if you look at throughout her reign you know she she swings sometimes she's very interventionist sometimes she's not she got on with some prime ministers and hated others so when she gets on with them she's uh, you know she's very visible and she's she's engaging in politics other times she just sort of zones out so um, you know she she was a very individual, I guess. Um, and obviously the relationship which um, sort of signifies um, her reign is that of her husband, Prince mm-hmm. Albert. Um, and he uh, was when, once she married him, he sort of acted as her political advisor. He was much more politically aware than she was. He was very engaged in politics. For example, he organized the great exhibition of 1851, which was a sort of celebration of british industry and culture um he was interested in the chartists um so he had so he sort of took that role of a male advisor
3: and that match so queen victoria and prince albert was as far as we can understand i think a love match
4: yeah i mean it had its sort of um <laughs> difficult faces like anything i mean she i think particularly because she was sort of literally pregnant constantly for um a lot of the marriage so that must have taken its toll both physically and mentally. It looks like um, that she may have had periods of sort of postnatal depression, which is probably not unusual having nine children. <laughs> um, so so they're, they're aware of its attention, but generally, yeah, she was really devoted to him. And, and you can sort of see that by her total withdrawal for a number of years after, after he dies in 1861.
3: So Sharon Rundle on Facebook says that she would like to know more about Victoria's relationship with um a man called John Brown after Albert's death. So um I suppose who is John Brown and how was he who who was he in relation to Victoria?
4: Yeah, so he was um, a servant um really but um as I say, she spent a lot of time out of London on, on her various estates, one of which was Osborne House, but also um, Balmoral in Scotland. And she, she got on with a number of um, servants, in, including John Brown. She enjoyed um, being able to sort of get away from the trials and tribulations of being monarch because she was monarch for so long. Um, and at this stage of her life, uh, towards the end of the 19th century towards the end of her life she all her children had grown up her youngest daughter eventually decided she wanted to get married which was caused huge amounts of stress for Victoria because she wanted to see um Princess Beatrice stay at home and look you know that was the role of the youngest daughter yeah she
3: was the favorite wasn't she But Beatrice
4: yeah so she was you know so she, I think she was quite demanding <laughs> and so John John Brown in a way played this role of a sort of confidant of somebody she could to unload on and I think that was probably very important for her because she obviously never remarried after Albert died and as we've seen she relied a lot on male advisers. so I think um he, he sort of fulfilled that
3: role. Um, a number of people actually wanted to ask is Queen Victoria directly related to our our Queen Queen Elizabeth II?
4: Yeah she's um I think the great great Grandmother of Elizabeth II, so uh, so it goes through. Obviously, Elizabeth's father is a descendant of Queen Victoria, and so therefore Elizabeth is also a descendant. Um, so yes, yeah, so they are directly related.
3: And this is quite um, an interesting question. Laura Alice wants to know: Is it true that one of Queen Victoria's sons was a Jack the Ripper suspect?
4: Um. It is rumoured that he was a Jack the Ripper suspect. So he was the Duke of Cumberland and um, he part of um, his lifestyle was to sort of wander around the streets and go to clubs. And, and he was a bit of a philanderer. So he has been mentioned as Jack the Ripper, as one of the suspects. But I think what captures the imagination about Jack the Ripper is, that we don't know who he is. (laughs) And so we've never known. So you can create all of these sorts of fantasies and and, um, theories about who might be Jack the Ripper, and we'll never know, really.
3: Yeah, of course, it's one of those things that's straight out of a, it'd be great out of a fiction novel of the Queen's son is, is the, you know, this awful person. Actually, on that note, what was Victoria's relationship with her children? Was she close to them? And was she actively involved in their lives? She had so many, obviously, nine.
4: So I think, again, she was a bit sort of quixotic. She was a bit sort of ran hot and cold. And she had quite a difficult relationship with her eldest son, um, Edward Seventh, particularly when he grew up, because I think she sort of held him up to the model of Prince Albert and he could never fulfil that role in some ways. Um, it's also the case that when Albert was quite ill in the just before he died, um, he'd gone to visit Edward at university to, uh, because there were rumours that he was having a relationship with an actress, and Victoria sort of blamed Edward for a long time for Albert's death, even though it was probably not related at all, but it was just a coincidence of timing. Mm-hmm. As I've said, in terms of Beatrice, um, her sort of favourite daughter uh when Beatrice uh, asked if she could marry she tried to block it um and eventually she did allow her to marry but only if if her and her her new husband um Prince Louis of Battenberg stayed in at, at with Victoria so um so I think it was uh she was a devoted mother in lots of ways but I think she was also quite demanding
3: yeah that makes sense um I love cats on Instagram, <laughs> great name there, <laughs> wants to know about mourning etiquette etiquette during the Victorian period. So what was the protocol if someone passed away? Um, and I suppose this question might be inspired by Queen Victoria herself because she had such a long mourning period following the death of Albert. Um, so, yes, what can you tell us about mourning etiquette?
4: So, again, it sort of um, depends on class Death was, as, as I've said, the life expectancy was quite short um, in this period, even for those higher up the social scale, in addition to things like typhoid, which, got, uh, which uh, saw uh, Prince Albert's um, death. There were also things like TB, which were big killers. So the rituals around death were quite important for the working class, even though their incomes were quite small, they would um, continue to um, to pay into insurance policies in order to pay for funerals and things. So to be buried in a pauper's grave was considered, you know, the, the worst thing that could happen. For those higher up the social scale, as you intimate with Queen Victoria, there are very um, sort of strict mourning rituals and those include things like the dress that you wear. So black initially, but then you could wear greys and sort of purples and things like that as we went into half mourning and so on there were um trinkets and things like mourning rings so where you would have maybe a lock of somebody's hair so you could carry it with you all the time also newspapers um for royal deaths but if for example you lost your wife or husband and the letters that you sent out would have black borders around them And the thicker the border was the, you know, proximity to the death in a way. So there are all these sorts, yeah, all these sorts of um, rituals, really, that I think help people to come to terms with um, the high levels of death and illness in the period. It was very common to lose children. And I think, you know, it was having some sort of structured grieving process was quite important.
3: We're almost at the end, so we'll try and finish on a bit of a more positive note mm-hmm. um, so actually I, was, I just wanted to sort of ask you I suppose who was your favorite Victorian figure that the you know we might not have heard of or has, hasn't has received the attention that they might deserve so uh
4: my favorite Victorian is a woman who you will never have heard of who's she's called Margaretia Loudon great name and <laughs> yeah <laughs> um And I like her because she was very interested in politics. She um, set out a whole sort of series of the ways in which government should be organised. She wrote in the 1830s and 1840s. She had a huge sense of her own sort of abilities and and, um, sort of authority on this. And she wrote to prime ministers sort of lecturing them on what they should do in order to run the country better. And there's a connection with her and the Penny Post because um, in 1842, the Chartists decide to, um, sorry, not Chartists, the Anti Cornwall League decide to do a mail shot to every single elector in Britain at the time, which is millions. And they decide that part of the mail shot should be um, a section from one of her publications, um, which was called. Um, Philanthropic economy, and uh, so this winged its way into every household in 1842, and it sort of signifies to me the fact that no one's ever heard of her. That you know how are these really important women just get lost.
3: Yeah, sadly, not just the case for the Victorian period. I think that's everything we've got time for. Um, is there anything else that you think we we should mention, or is there anything you want to give a shout out to?
4: I guess the shout out that I do is that one of the projects that I'm involved in is a, a sort of crowdsourcing project to try and map every single women's suffrage campaigner in England. So anybody who's interested can go and look at the map, which is um, on the website mappingwomensuffrage.org.uk uh, and you can see the lives uh, or- of ordinary suffrage campaigners, women's suffrage campaigners, Um, And also maybe give us your stories of the people that you're aware of who are engaged in the suffrage campaign. So that's my my shout out. Um, But the Victorian period is a fascinating period. And it's great that so many people are still so interested in it.
0: That was Professor Sarah Richardson. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics or historians that you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. On our next episode, out tomorrow, Valerie Hansen will be discussing the year 1000 AD.